If you use the internet on a daily basis, and chances are you do, you probably don't put much thought into cybersecurity. You know, your network connections, the pages you visit, the files you download. You should be thinking about these all the time. Welcome to And Security for All. Your host is Kim Hakem. We're here to help you understand, in general terms, how and why your cybersecurity should be kept in check. Now, here is Kim Hakem. Well, hello, everyone. Happy Friday. I'm Kim Hakem, your host. If this is your first time tuning in, welcome to the show. Welcome to another episode of And Security for All. I hope everyone is ready for the weekend. I'm so excited to be back today. It's been actually probably almost a month since I've streamed live on LinkedIn. We do have an episode every Friday on the Voice America Business Network. So you can always find our past shows um, any place that you listen to your podcast. I've had Jonathan Kimmett. He's the uh, CISO for the University of Tulsa. He's been helping me out. He's been hosting a few episodes um, for me. And um, we did... We have been all over North America over the past couple of months. If For those of you that don't know, I'm also the CEO of FutureCon Events. We put on cybersecurity conferences all over the country. We had about six shows that were rescheduled. The venues were rescheduled from prior to COVID, and, and we've been doing those back-to-back. We were in Baltimore, New Jersey, Omaha, Dallas, Los Angeles, um, uh, I'm trying to think where we were last week, New Jersey. So it's been pretty crazy, but it has been um, exciting because our event is many, very often, it's been the first event that attendees are back out to in, at live shows. So it's been thrilling, but exhausting. But again, we're excited to be out there um, just seeing people live again. So thank you, Jonathan, for covering me while I was on the road. But it is not over. I am heading, my team, we're heading to Denver next week. And our keynote speaker out in Denver is the infamous Chris Roberts. Um, he's been a past guest on the show. He's a highly, highly sought at, uh, sought at, a sought out speaker around the world. Actually, if you don't know him, you should. He's famous. Um, he's a famous hacker doing amazing things in the cyber world. He's going to be our keynote speaker next week in Denver, and he'll be sitting on a CISO panel. So that's going to be a great event. If you happen to be in Denver, come check us out. We actually do all of our events in a hybrid mode, so you can always catch our shows virtually. Just go to futurecodevents.com and check out our schedule. Um, I'm very excited for our guest today. And before I bring our guest in, I want to remind everyone out there that is on LinkedIn Live, um, just please, um, any questions, comments, please uh, insert your comments because we'd love to have you um, interact on the show. I've had the pleasure of meeting my guest, the CEO um, from the company he works for, Stu, um, their CEO, was actually the keynote speaker at one of our events prior to to COVID. Today, I have Perry Carpenter, who is from Know Before. Um, know Before is a provider of one of maybe the world's largest security awareness trainings. Perry is an author. He's a speaker. He's a podcast host. But um, what he does for Know Before, he's a chief strategist and chief evangelist.
Angeles for Know Before. He has a recent book out that we're going to chat about today. It's called, uh, well, it's about what is security culture. The book is called the uh, Security Culture Playbook. We're going to talk a lot about that. He has other books out there. He um, has another book called Transformational Security Awareness. So previously, he um, worked for Gartner. I'm super excited to have Perry on the show today, and we have a lot to talk about. We're just going to talk about the culture of cybersecurity and the human side of cybersecurity. So welcome to the show, Perry. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. This is exciting. I'm excited to have you. How's everything going with No Before and over in your world over there? Oh, it's always super busy. So, um, you know, uh, COVID for us was um, really a wake-up call for the world uh, and businesses around the world that that uh, they hadn't thought of everything. And when you have uh, all these businesses around the world sending people home in droves and then saying, now, how do I secure this environment? And how do I make people aware of the the environments that they're in at all times and how they're using company information and how do I deal with the distraction that people have as they're dealing with uh, maybe fear for their health, um, balancing work and home life in, in a way that they never have before and work and home information in ways that they never have before. Um, you know, all that to say, it's been a, a very, very good and very, very busy time for a company like No Before. Well, the last couple of years of everyone being in that home work environment, it um, definitely has put a bigger toll on cybersecurity yeah. professionals and um, practitioners. And one of the things that we started doing um, when we went back out on the road is we're honoring a lot of some of the practitioners. We wish we could honor them all, but we do at each show about 20 to 30 practitioners that we honor. And one of them, a CISO today, he said, why are you honoring? me and I said I said well I tried to get a hold of you like a couple of weeks ago and he's, he said something like well, oh I was hands down on a project I go that's exactly why we're honoring you because of all the hard work right. that you guys are doing out there so it's definitely been a challenging world and it's so awesome to see the cybersecurity practitioners coming back out to live events because they need each other to lean on and get ideas from and you know it's just been a tough isolated world for a lot of them yeah, CISO. I mean, that's a a very thankless position most of the time. It's uh, it's kind of like plumbing, you know. When everything's going <laughs> well, you don't really think about uh, plumbing or your plumber, but you only really think about that that job or the fact that you even have pipes going through everything when stuff goes bad um, and when everything is is backed up in the wrong way. And so, gosh, man, my my heart goes out to all the CISOs out there that have had to been uh, really just heads down dealing with the past few years. And they've been <clears throat> they've been so amazing. Like last week, we were in New Jersey, and I had the CISO of the state of New Jersey as my keynote speaker. And I've had these CISOs from huge enterprise companies just coming out and still being gracious enough to spend yeah. a day with people, even though you know they're carrying the world on their back. I guess that is, um, you know, we do a, a wrap up with a CISO panel, and one of the questions is, you know, how do you avoid that burnout of the CISO because that's a tough and and I've been seeing a lot of CISOs going from that role to going over on the other side because you know managing the stress of a CISO right. is 
is a pretty heavy thing. But when I was doing some research on you, one of the past things that I, I your new book, um, mm. the security culture playbook, which I think a lot of things we're already talking about are going to, you know, be talked about in that book. What can you tell us about that? And, you know, what, what it tell us yeah. a little bit about that. Well, uh, the, the first thing I'll tell you about it is it has a really long subtitle. So I'm actually going to have to read it because I don't have it memorized. <laughs> so my, my first book too was called Transformational Security Awareness and it had a really long subtitle. The subtitle on that first one was what neuroscientists, storytellers and marketers can teach us about driving secure behaviors. And so that was really about the, the science of doing security awareness well from a behavior management standpoint into the culture and the communication science and project management. And this book, uh, the Security Culture uh, Playbook, has an equally long subtitle, and it is An Executive Guide to Reducing Risk and Developing Your Human Defense Layer. And so there's some hints in the title uh, as to what it's really about. So uh, that first thing, executive guide, what that means is that uh, not only a CISO should be able to pick this up, but also a CEO, a CIO, a board of directors member, and really start to understand the importance of the human side of security within their organization. You know, my, my actual hope is that this becomes standard reading uh, for board of directors members and that they pick this up and they go, oh, you know what? I read through the first few chapters. I can already tell this is important here. Let me give this now to my CISO and say, you need to go implement this type of mindset in your organization. Um, so that's that's the the basis of it. Uh, some of those other keywords in there is uh, reducing risk, because when you think about it, everything that we do in security ultimately has one goal. And that's to reduce risk within an organization so that organization can thrive and make the business decisions that it needs in order to serve its customer base, whatever that is. So everything in business is really around risk management, whether that's risk management for uh, the way that you deal with your finances, risk management for the way that you deal with HR, risk management for the way that you deal with uh, product uh, engineering. Um, but specifically when I'm talking about it, I'm talking about risk management as it has to do with the people in your organizations and how you're setting them up to interact with the technology and the other physical parts of security that are there. And then the last piece is uh, reducing risk and developing your human defense layer. Um, because what we've seen over and over and over again is that cybersecurity and good cybersecurity programs are built on what we would call layered defenses. And uh, within, let's say, the OSI network model, um, you start at the data and you start to figure out how do you how do you architect that? How do you secure that? And you build that all the way out to the application layer or the presentation layer of your uh, of your stack. Now, the thing that's typically forgotten is that after that application layer lives somebody on the other side of the keyboard, lives somebody on the other side of the screen, and that is the human, the, the thing that is interacting with the technology. And so this book is all about understanding what that human to computer or human to technology interface uh, really comprises, how we need to think about that so that we have that, that end state of reduction of risk within the organization. 
So prior to know before, and I probably should have asked you this question before you started to explain the book. Um, can you tell our audience what you did? Because it's very impressive, yeah. where, your background and where you came from. So, uh, I mean, a few things. If I were to, to start at the beginning, um, and I'll just give you the 30 seconds of the beginning and flash forward. Um, so I started off as an application developer um, at a little company called Walmart. Uh, was instrumental in writing the email software that they used in the stores and the Sam's Club systems for several years. Um, also did a lot of identity management work uh, and other security work for Walmart. Uh, then went and worked for a company called Altel, a telephone company before they were bought by Horizon. Did a lot of their enterprise uh, security initiatives and very strategic initiatives. Also ran security awareness there as part of that. Um, then went to Gartner and did uh, research analyst and advisory work and identity management, um, data loss prevention, data leak prevention. Um, oh gosh, uh, hard drive encryption back when that market was starting up and in several other uh, areas. And one of those other areas was security awareness. Uh, then um, a company called Fidelity Information Services had a large scale breach in 2011. And I went to work on the restructuring of their security program. I uh, went to work for a friend of mine named Greg Schaefer there who took on the CISO role after that. And did that, uh, took on their security awareness program, also a lot of their regulatory interface uh, initiatives, working with the regulators and the, the auditors to say, here's what we're doing to address all this breach situation. Here's how we're building things out so that we have a sustainable security program in the long run. And then of course, the security awareness stuff, getting the right information to the right people at the right time to drive the right behaviors, ultimately to reduce risk within the organization and make that sustainable. Uh, then went back to Gartner, uh, did kind of a CISO mentoring uh, program there uh, called EITL, Enterprise IT Leader Program. Uh, also uh, did some uh, security analyst work and ran the Magic Quadrant for the security awareness market, uh, did a lot of work with vendors, helping them think through how to best build the technology that's going to serve the market in the best way, and then, uh, you know, into no before after that. So how did you... Um you know, it's a pretty prestigious to work at Gartner. What made you decide to take that leap over to know before? Oh, that's a really good question. So at Gartner, you're you're always on the it's a really it's a really, really um, interesting strategic play that you have when you're at Gartner. So the first thing you are at the nexus point of a ton of information. So you're hearing from vendors about what their plans for the future are, uh, how they're planning to uh, tackle the next three to five years, how they're serving current customers, what their current technology strategy is and so on. You're also hearing from security leaders around the world and technology leaders around the world of what they actually need need, um, what language they use internal with their organization, how they are um, helping each other in their own networks, and then also all the problems that they have. And so a lot of that is also kind of therapy for uh, the, the technologists that are out there and the CISOs that are out there and the CIOs that are out there, and then also um, helping the vendors understand what the real needs are 
rather than a vendor working in isolation, trying to architect a product, bring that to market, and it just not have a product to market fit. Um, so some of that is, is helping to shape the way the technology gets built. And so, but some of it is also just to help the vendors and the, um, the people that they're hoping will buy their products speak the same language. So there's a lot of that that's there. Um, what what we have heard is that to get hired at Gartner is one of the most grueling processes uh, of any vendor or, or any uh, any company that's out there. Um, I've I've heard whether that's you know the hardest or whether that's one of the ten most hardest. It's universally accepted that it's really really difficult because you have to run this gauntlet of of exercises in order to get in that includes a lot of. Um, uh, a lot of research, a lot of uh, presenting to the analyst community, the analyst um, uh, in in a, a, a very fun, but doesn't always sound, sound or feel fun way, um, trying to pick apart your research as you're there. So you have to defend positions. You have to figure out how to give on positions. You have to figure out how to be respectful in those situations. Um, and then ultimately they take a vote uh, as a collective on whether you get brought on board. It, you know, I was, um in the Navy when I was younger. Mm. And it kind of reminds me of like, go like the Navy SEALs or something right. like that, you know, <laughs> the elite of where you're gonna go through some, you know, pretty tough, tough training. Yeah, to- it's a fun job though. I mean, there are very few jobs where you have access to the amount of information that you have access to as a Gartner analyst or maybe a Forrester analyst in uh, IDC and those others. Um, it is it, you feel very, very blessed and privileged to be trusted by the people that you're trusted by there. So um, I definitely I have a ton of respect for people that do that job. So what is there a, is Forrester just pretty much a competitor of Gartner? How do you yeah. compare those two? Yeah, Forrester and Gartner, um, at least in the, the U.S., are the two major uh, analyst vendors um, or analyst uh, companies that are out there producing really meaningful research. So, and each of them have versions of the other's thing. So Gartner has the very famous magic quadrant. Forrester has what's called the Forrester wave. Um, Gartner has uh, market guides. Forrester has their versions of that as well. So they're very similar. Um, the, the big difference though, I would say is that, um, and I don't have the current numbers on this, so don't don't hold me to them, but I would say at the time that I was there for every, um, you know, 20 Gartner analysts, there was maybe one Forrester analyst, which meant that um, when you're speaking to a Gartner analyst, you're speaking to somebody who is very, very, very deep in the weeds on the few things that they cover. Um, versus when you're talking to a Forrester analyst, you may be talking to one person that's covering 20 or 30 different technologies. And so they may not be as deep in the weeds on some of those very specific technologies. They might have more general guidance versus the Gartner analyst that's really only focusing on a few things that can go a mile deep. So do you feel like you're an analyst by nature? Yeah, I mean, I am... um, somebody that likes to get in the weeds on things and to to dissect it, uh, take it apart, understand the why behind uh, how everything works, understand what problem it's actually trying to solve. And then uh, and then also that the key thing that an analyst does isn't just understanding all that, but it's being able to articulate to the parties that it matters to the most how that thing fits in, what problems it solves or the converse 
this is the wrong fit for you. Or as a vendor, maybe you're maybe you're trying to, to you're spending a lot of time, money and effort building something and the timing isn't right yet or or you're trying to serve the wrong market with this. But if you just pivot a little bit, you can find the right fit. And so really getting in the weeds, understanding the complexities of that, and then understanding the fit of that in the grand scheme of things. So there's a lot of zooming in and then zooming out and then zooming in and then zooming out and then pivoting around and understanding context. I find it so fascinating because I've had so many guests from you know, all over every, every sector of our industry. And, um, you know, when it comes to the human element side of cybersecurity, how do you really, you know, how do you, how are you analyzing that? And how are you, what are you doing with that? Yeah. So there is in the technology sphere, I think for decades, you have a lot of well-meaning technologists that say, we are going to deal with the human side of things in a technocentric manner. And, and by that, what I mean is that at every year, if you go to RSA or some similar technology-based security conference, you'll hear vendors say, oh, we've solved the human thing. Data breaches will no longer be an issue. You don't have to worry about what, what the things that people are clicking on or um, whether they're sending out social security numbers or not because we fixed all that. It, it's no longer an issue. And what we see year after year after year after year is the data breach problem isn't going away. In fact, it's it's getting exponentially worse. And so um, there's a, a chart that I put in the security culture playbook that shows the amount of spending on on technology-based security products over the past decade or so. Um, and you see that that's gradually going up. It's actually going up at a pretty good clip. People are spending more and more and more every year on security. Uh, and the other th line that's on that graph is the number of data breaches. And what you see in that graph is that, yeah, the security spending is going up, but at the same time, the data breach line is going up higher and faster. And what that suggests to me is that our spend is missing a very specific component. It's missing the component of whatever's gonna stop the data breaches. And when we look at uh, the Verizon data breach investigation report and uh, a ton of other research that's been done out there, is we see that 85% plus of the data breaches are caused by social engineering or human error. Yet most of the spending on cybersecurity is happening in very technocentric types of solutions. Um, in fact, when we really get down into the weeds on the spending, um, it's less than 5% of spending that's happening at the human layer of defense. And so my proposition is not that technology is ineffective, um, but that we do need to spend, we need to pivot, we need to, to spend a little bit more time, money and attention on the human side so that we can start to close that gap. Because, and, and then I'll uh, break for a second and let you respond. What we see over and over and over again is that we are making the technology-based uh, pieces of security very difficult to bypass for an attacker that's launching, let's say, um, computer-based hacking attacks against an ecosystem. It's, it's harder and harder and harder to bypass all of the different crunchy layers of technology that we've built. But 
if I'm an attacker, what I'm saying at this point is, why spend days, weeks, or months trying to get past all of these crunchy technology-based layers when I can just phone up Bob in accounting and trick him into doing something? Or if I can just craft the right phishing email that sails through the secure email gateway filters, lands in Bob's inbox, and tricks him into clicking on a link. So that's where we need to be spending a lot of time, money, and attention now because we've effectively made the technology so difficult that the humans are now the, the front line because the, the, the attacker says, that's way too hard to do. Let me go find the softer target. So we need to harden the human side of things. You know, I had a John Kinderweg on the show. Mm -hmm. I'm sure you know who that is. And, you know, he's the creator of Zero Trust. And I asked him the same thing. I said, you know, when you go and Google Zero Trust, you know, at least, I mean, the first page is full of vendors. Right. You know, we can provide you zero trust, you know, and I'm like, how do you feel about that? You know, because he is exactly what, you know, all about exactly what you're talking about. And yeah. it has nothing to do with products. You know, it goes back to zero trust and the human side of things and mm -hmm. how I mean, there's always going to be that one person. So, you know, is there ever going to be a solution? Yeah, well, I mean, you have to, again, if we go back to the concept of layers and continuing to have things that are compensating for another's weakness, um, this is never an, a, a one-size-fits-all type of thing. So I'm never going to say, hey, your technology is ineffective, throw it out. Or I'm never going to say, your, your humans will never stop everything, so, so give up on that. What we, what we unfortunately have seen, though, is in the technology space, you have a lot of people that will say, hey, you're never going to get everybody to um, to be resilient to phishing. There's always going to be somebody in the organization that is going to get tricked into clicking on something. And then they'll say, because of that, why bother with training? Why bother with behavioral conditioning? Why bother with security culture? And then the only thing that I'm asking is to say, now take that same bit of logic and apply that to any other layer of security and see if it holds. Because what we know is that secure email gateways do let phishing emails through. I mean, otherwise they would never be in somebody's inbox and never be exploited. We wouldn't have ransomware. We wouldn't have all these other things. Um, but nobody is saying, hey, a phishing email got through the secure email gateway, so let's throw it out. A uh, hacking attack got through the firewall, so let's throw it out. Endpoint, protect, in, endpoint protection platform didn't stop every single virus or piece of malware, so let's throw it out. Nobody is taking that same bit of logic and applying it universally across the security stack. The only place they ever apply that is on the human, and I think that that's, what that shows is an unconscious bias towards the technology because as technologists, we really like the fact that we can buy something. It is essentially a, an understandable black box to us. We plug it in and we hope for the best. And then when it doesn't work, oh, somebody else has come out with the next best thing. We put a lot of faith, hope, and trust in that. We buy that, plug it in, and see what happens. 
a couple of shout outs to some of our viewers. Um, mm. Alex Will Williams, thanks for being here today. And Alex was interested in some of our events. And it looks like um, my sales director already took care of that. But nice. Miguel, <clears throat> yeah, Miguel um, Angelo, sorry, Miguel, if I messed up your last name, says that he agrees the human factor should have more focus and behavior must be addressed. Mm. And I do think that a lot of CISOs are addressing it. Um, last year, when we were completely in virtual, one of the things we were doing in FutureCon is we were having like these bourbon happy hours with CISOs. It was actually really fun because there was no sales to it. And it was very interesting because I had some very high, um, you know, some CISOs that were with some very large financial institutions and healthcare institutions. And um, one of the, a couple of the CISOs were talking about just how they've made, they have cybersecurity day, you know, and mm. they simulate a ton of phishing attacks and, you know, the, they give away awards, you know, to, to the other, to the non-security teams. And, nice. you know, like it's, it's really awesome because now people look forward to cyber security day and it would right. be nice to see that happening like i wish those kind of CISOs were out there you know i tried to put them on a platform and invite them to my events and talk about those things but you know you know i guess approaching it in a more you know proactive positive model instead of you know just firing the person that right. you know <laughs> open the open the email yeah you know. And we, we do have to realize that opening the email doesn't mean, or clicking on the link even, doesn't mean that the person that did that is stupid. It just means that they're human. Mm -hmm. um, I would challenge anybody to be resilient to 100% of phishing attacks if they are being targeted, or if the person that is being attacked is extremely distracted um, or in the right frame of mind. And so when I hear of... Um, well, I should back up and say one of the things that I, I hear and see, and I saw a lot at Gartner, too, was people proposing policies that would say something like, hey, if you fall for three simulated phishing attacks, that means that you're fired. Um, or, you know, it may not be three, it might be five, it might be seven. Um, and I understand the frustration of seeing somebody fail those things over and over and over and know that they are causing a risk to the organization. But the first thing we should look at in those cases is, have we unintentionally set somebody up to fail those things? And if you've got somebody that is overworked, a department that's understaffed, you might have somebody in HR whose literal job, uh, if they're in recruiting, is to open every attachment that comes in. Um, and to process a certain amount per day, you're kind of setting that person up for to, to fail. And here's the other thing that I would say is if somebody clicking on a phishing email is the end of your organization's security, then the person has not failed you. You have failed them. You've put them in a situation where that that one person is the difference between breach and no breach. And of course, we do security awareness training, we do simulated phishing um, and all that to, to help with those types of situations. But at the same time, 
if that is the linchpin, if somebody clicking that link is game over for your organization, then that means you probably have some other areas of uh, security technology that you need to put in place that would drastically limit the effectiveness of malware if that starts to get in. So you do want to be able to look at those. You do have all these layers that have been bypassed by the time a user um, will touch a phishing email. But if that is the last layer of defense in your organization, you need to look at figuring out how to how to how to put containment strategies in. It, while you were talking about that, it made me think about something that happened to me about 10 years ago when I was purchasing my home. You know, I unfortunately sent all my documents over email and, you know, we don't have fax machines anymore. You know, everything, we're in a fast world, you know, right. so it's easy to just sign, you know, put something in a PDF, sign it, and you're sending your life away over the internet. What is the responsibility of all, and that, and I ended up having my identity stolen. That was, mm. you know, and I'm very cautious about doing that stuff. I learned the hard way. So what, you know, and that was 10 years ago. So things are even more advanced, you know, we're in a fast faster world you know 10 years ago we still had fax machines but i don't think there's too many <laughs> fax machines out there so how do you i know you know there's the cloud and there's drop boxes and there's ways to secure things but but what is your advice when it comes to banking information and mm. stuff like that that we're almost in a situation that we do have to do it via over the internet yeah i mean for, for me it's always context Right. It's um, am I expecting this? And then also what types of containment strategies have I put in for myself? So um, for any medium to high risk accounts, you definitely need multi-factor authentication um, for very high, high risk accounts. The multi-factor authentication that you use should not be a text message being sent to your phone because that's way too easy for somebody to to trick you and to to. Um, giving that away or somebody to, to, uh, to be able to bypass in other ways. So you want to go to something a little bit stronger, like an on-app device. Um, there's weaknesses there, too. I can talk about those in a second. Um, the strongest would be something like a hardware token, like a, a YubiKey that you can plug in or use NFC with. Um, so you want to think about context. I'm only doing certain things in certain contexts. You do want to think about specific um, machines or devices for specific activities. If you're a very high risk person with a lot of net worth, you might not want to do internet banking on the same machine that you do everything else on. You might want to have a separate system that you use that for um, and only do it from certain locations like your home. So you, do, you have to think um, context, you have to think risk, and you have to think about how do, I, how do I build the different layers in that are going to help mitigate that risk. And unfortunately, that means a little bit of work. Um, one of the other things, so in addition to multi-factor authentication, which you can do pretty easily now, um, the other thing would be if you're still managing everything through passwords and you're still remembering those passwords on your own or you have a book or you're putting them in the notes pad of your phone, um, don't do that. Instead, get a password manager like uh, LastPass or OnePass or Dashlane or several of the others that are out there and let that manage those passwords for you because at that point, you're not dealing with whatever you can easily remember. You're dealing with uh, things that could be 24, 32 characters or more um, of 
random gibberish that gets generated by, by a machine and remembered on your behalf. So that starts to strengthen that piece of it as well. And then the other thing is, uh, like in your case with the, the situation 10 years ago, um, when, you, when you get something that is making you um, do something that is inherently risky, whether that's transfer funds or uh, sign a document that is inherently risky, always take a breath and slow down, even if you're expecting it. Look at all, all the different signs, see if there's any type of compromise that may be there. Potentially even call up the number that you have on file for that person. Say, is this the thing that I'm looking for? Uh, double verify it and then go through with it. Um, because one of, the, uh, one of the tricks that we see the bad guys doing right now is injecting themselves in the processes exactly like you described. So at the very last minute of somebody about to close on a house, they'll you know, call somebody and say, oh, don't send it to this account, send it to this other account instead. And so you want to double, triple verify all those things before you make any large, inherently risky decision that is difficult to take back or would wreck your uh, your life in the next few months as you try to sort those things out. Well, that's really good advice. And we've got we a bunch of questions. First, I uh, just want to give you a shout out from Hernan Popper said, Perry, your book uh, thanks. so far is fascinating. Hope to find the time to finish it soon. And then um, Jesse W said, what's one thing you would recommend to help us charge or change those leaders' minds about using negative reinforcement? <laughs> um, if you can say it respectfully, then the way that it, the way I always position it and I, I get to sometimes be the louder bad guy in these situations because I was always coming in as a consultant or a Gartner analyst and somebody would say, well, here's our policy where this is three strikes out. We think it's pretty great. If somebody clicks on a phishing email three times, they're gone. And the thing I would always say is what happens if your CEO clicks on a phishing simulation three times? Are you going to fire that person? And then they'd stammer and say no. And I'd say, unless you can universally apply this, it's not a good policy. And so the first thing you need to do is have some kind of um, uh, actually, I'd say two things. One is look for that universality, uh, see something that could be applied throughout the organization, all the way from the lowest level where, you know, frankly, you may see that some people are expendable up to the highest level where um, people feel like that they, they have actions without consequences. So you want to apply that policy universally throughout. The other thing is you really need to cultivate empathy in your security team and start to ask the questions of why people are falling for things. Why are they not connecting and following policies? And the, the way that I would always used to say it is if there is a gap between your policy expectation and your behavioral reality, it's probably that the policy is written in such a way as that it doesn't account for the realities of human nature. And so that could be um, anything from something like a phishing policy to um, the way that you're expecting people to, to use communications to um, the way that people interact with data leak prevention tools and, and others. But if there's a gap between the things that you're expecting in policy and the behavioral reality, it's, it's either that there's a training problem and you need to address that through training 
or there's a process problem and you need to either build or repair a process somewhere, or there's a technology problem and the technology that you're asking people to use doesn't naturally facilitate the behavior that you're looking for. And so uh, anytime, again, anytime that, that there's a breakdown like that, I always look to see what is what am I doing wrong if I'm the CISO um, or the CIO? What can I do to help facilitate the behavior that we're looking for? Because at the end of the day, people are just trying to get on to the next thing. Um, and it's our job as technologists to help facilitate that next thing that they need to do in the most secure way possible. So Diana or Diane Mickelson said, uh, Jesse W, going back to her question, he, her, um, does the negative reinforcement apply to the leaders as well? I think that's kind of you just covered right. that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, if it's not applying to the leaders, then it's a broken policy by default. And then Miguel said, when all security controls fail, is it up to the user to address the phishing email? Um, it is if there's no other technology control past the user, right? Um, and so in a lot of cases, when somebody is saying the user is the last line of defense, there are cases when that's true. It, it does, the phishing email ends up in the end user's inbox. They click on that link and you know then it's game over from there. Um, I would say at this point, there's not always a reason that that has to be so. Um, you, you definitely want to protect, you want your users to be a good line of defense, but they don't necessarily have to be the last line of defense. You could have uh, browser containers in there. You could have uh, network segmentation there. There's, there's lots of things that you can do so that you can start to mitigate the effects of that security related behavior that went awry. Um, and so the, the only thing that I would say is if the user is your last line of defense, you may have a little bit more work that you can do um, and some more investigation that can be done on how you can start to mitigate that and make that a little bit safer environment. Hernan, um, he's giving me some trouble about the fax machine not being safe. I agree. I wasn't saying it was. He said all healthcare industry in Manitoba, if I said that right, is required to continue using fax to communicate patients' data. I assume it's not the only place, and it's easy to forge a fax. And you also have tons of unsecured data, you know, before HIPAA and everything laying around mm -hmm. all over the place. So I definitely wasn't saying the fax machine is the way to go. I I was just trying to say the advancement of technology. But if you want to comment on that. Um, I, I don't really have a lot of constructive comments when it comes to fax machines. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, the, the, the thing that I would say is that there are some, some um, institutions that, that rely on faxes because they believe that they're more secure. Um, not always the case, especially if you're not checking your facts regularly, if things just print out on it and then people leave it till the end of the day, you don't know what kind of data is going to be there. Um, but there's the perception of this is more point to point communication, it's less shared uh, and so on. But that's only the case if you're taking all, all the right precautions. The other problem that comes up with faxes that I see is that if an organization is requiring faxes, um, 
Most of the people that need to send faxes now don't have ready access to a fax machine. And so what they end up doing is they go online and they search for something that will convert email or Word documents to a fax and then send that. And they don't have a lot of guidance as far as what the right apps or websites are that will actually protect those and keep those secure. So you could be actually opening somebody up to a lot more world of hurt and security problems because now they're downloading random apps or going to random websites just trying to solve a problem. Um, and then people are going back and forth talking about you know the negative uh, reinforcement and Hernan is just definitely saying, read your book, read Perry's book and everything's in there. And I can't always, um, the, the names don't always come through here. It's just a LinkedIn user. Please provide your thoughts on today's VPNs for both corporate networks mm. and home offices. Yeah, so I'm not going to mention any VPN names. The only thing I would say is that there are definitely tiers of VPNs that are known and respected VPNs where you understand what they're doing to protect your data. And then there are other um, VPNs that maybe somebody that's looking for this a little bit more cost conscious um, that, that isn't ready to do the right research. Um, those VPNs may or may not be helpful to you and may or may not have all the protections that you're you're hoping for. And so when it comes to point of send to point of receipt and just people casually looking in, um, just about any VPN is going to be better than no VPN. But when it comes to who is actually able to monitor that, um, with if they have a lot of intent or if they have an in with the person or the company that's running the VPN, that's an entirely different class of question. So you do want to, if you're an organization, if you're a company um, and you're wanting to uh, to buy and deploy VPN technology, you really want to do your, your due diligence there. And that's where you get the Gartners and Foresters and IDCs and those analysts involved so that you can get a, a really good cross comparison in a vendor neutral way across all of those. And then um, there are similar uh, analyst advisory services in the consumer space as well. Um, unfortunately, all the names of those are escaping me right now. But if you just search vendor comparison list, you're going to see a few. You might like see um, G2 Crowd. There's another one that starts with a C, um, but I'm not I'm forgetting their name again. But there's lots of good comparison services out there. And you want to not only look at cost, but you want to look at the you want to get insight from people who have actually read the terms of service in those things and know what they're doing with your data and who they're giving access to. So going back a little bit on when we were talking about banking and when I was talking about, you know, just doing things over the Internet. Um, yeah. Another question is, you know, say, you know, on the business side of things, you know, like are, are somebody that has, you know, a lot of fine, a lot of money in a bank and they're going to transfer that money. Are you saying that, you know, what, what do you think the current policy should be of a bank when you're doing a wire transfer from one bank to another? You think that hmm. two-factor authentication on your cell phone is not a secure way to do that? Um, it, it really, really depends. So some of it comes down to how risk averse the person is um, and, of course, how how protective the bank wants to be. 
So the bank is always very interested in protecting money because they don't want to have to deal with the loss and the insurance and everything else. And of course, the person should be interested. But people as consumers, we tend to put blind, tr blind faith and trust into the institution that's there. We, we really inherently believe that our bank has the best security possible. And in some cases, they do. Most banks now are really, really good. Um, I can't speak to every little community bank that's out there. Um, I would assume that there's a lot of variation in that. But when you get to the bigger banks, they've dealt with risk for a long time. Um, a lot of the banking applications and websites have a good understanding of your user profile as a, from a baseline perspective. So if you have an app on your phone, um, or if you're using uh, web banking from your laptop and, and you're pretty consistent there, they know what your computer looks like. They're, they've done a basic device fingerprint of who you are, the, the machinery that you use, your location, your behavior patterns, and everything else. So if you start to deviate from that, that's going to trip some suspected fraud warnings on their part. And they do a pretty good job in stopping that and then giving you a phone call or sending you a text or sending you a push notification through their app and saying, was this really you? So they're, they're doing you know, way better than they have in the past. Um, for me, if you're transferring hundreds of thousands of dollars, that may be something that I don't just blindly do online. I'm going to get in touch with a customer service rep. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to uh, double and triple check a lot of different boxes. Um, if you're doing normal bill pay and maybe even a little bit higher transactions, maybe ten, twenty thousand dollars if you need to, then generally the tools that are in the website that you already know and trust, if you're going to it the right way, I'll caveat it that way. If you're going to it the right way or using the, the, the real app, not a clone app or something else, then you're going to be taken care of pretty well. Where you're going to fall in trouble is, let's say you're going to the banking website based on a link that was in an email sent to your um, sent, sent to your you know, personal Gmail account um, or your, your work account. At that point, I'm going to wonder a little bit if, uh, if that's a legitimate link. And instead, I'll probably um, open my browser. I'll go straight to the website myself, log in the way I always have, and then start to go through whatever process I do. Um, another another uh, pro tip is if you're using a password manager, then one of the other assurances that you can get on whether you're in the right website is when you open your banking website, if that's filling in your user ID and password for you, um, then it is the website that you registered with your password manager. If you open up, let's say Bank of America or Capital One or something else, and you've registered that in your password manager and it doesn't automatically put in the user ID and password for you, it's a good likelihood that that's a cloned site because your password manager has kind of memorized all of the you know, interesting little things about that website um, from a URL perspective that make, it, uh, that make it valid. And so those lookalike or dummy URLs or anything else um, would be seen as a completely different website by a password manager. A really quick question, because we're getting close to the wrap up of the show, or probably have about three and a half minutes, but 
I have always been curious as a business owner, and I have a client that wants to wire money into our account. The mm. bank always has a standard routing number, and they they have that standard information that we give our customers. I always feel like, is that really secure? Somebody sending money in, I mean, for, for you, you're fine, right? It's when you're sending money out uh, that, that you should care about. But is there a way that they can decipher that to figure out how to get money out? I mean, I've always wondered to, that. Yeah, to my knowledge, no, not if you're okay. wiring. So so wire transfer is different than a, an ACH, um, which right. is uh, gives you a little bit more credibility or a little bit more authorization as somebody that set up that, that connection that can be two-way. But a wire... Is at least as far as the way I understand it is a one-way transaction. Well, they're still getting the routing number of the bank. Right. And they're then getting, I guess, you know, they're getting an account number. But Right. Yeah, they're like, getting a, a different routing number um, because that's a specific routing number. Uh, and I only know because I had to do this a few weeks ago. Um, but the the routing number that's associated with checking and savings, you're right. You can find that online really, really easy as well. So um, generally, my advice is always to look at your your online transaction history at, le at least once every two days and look for anything weird, which is getting harder and harder to decipher right now. Right. Because everybody's doing so many transactions online. Like uh, like for us, we do so many uh, online transact I won't mention the name of the retailer we do a ton with one retailer and so over and over and over because we always have things shipped to us you might see 20 30 transactions from mm -hmm. that retailer every day easy for somebody to get um, to you know to hide in that if they wanted to and so you have to be super super diligent so you can never just um, get away from all the responsibility that you have as a consumer you have to you have to step in and do a little bit of monitoring on your own well, I know we talked a lot about some really basic stuff, but I really think that does go along with the human element of mm -hmm. all of us taking ownership of what we're doing to keep our, you know, um, security postures clean. But with this, we're down to two minutes. Um, what would your parting words be to our audience of what they can do, you know, just to to help themselves, help their organizations and just be part of this whole um cleanliness of cybersecurity. Yeah. So in, in, you know, about a minute to two minutes, um, number one, have empathy, realize that people make mistakes because they're human, not because they're stupid. And we have about 30 seconds. Sorry. Right. <laughs> well, no, I'll, I'll leave it at that. Realize that human nature is the deciding factor in, in, in this. And so you have to work with human nature rather than against it. People are not stupid. They're just human. We have to work within those limitations. Well, Perry Carpenter, Chief Strategy Officer, Evangelist with No Before. So awesome to have you on the show. Um, hope to have you back. That hour flew. Love to have you back and uh, pick your brain more. Everyone, We I couldn't even keep up with the questions. <laughs> thank you so much for being here today. And um, to my viewers out there, thank you all so much for tuning in today. If you want to get a hold of Perry, you can find him on LinkedIn. Um, we, I'm sure he'll answer any questions. I know we didn't, we weren't able to address everything. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned, stay safe, stay secure, and we'll see you next week. Everyone have a great weekend. Thank you 
for tuning into And Security for All. Be sure to join your host, Kim Hagem, for another episode of the show next Friday at noon Pacific time and 3 p.m. Eastern time on the Voice America Business Channel. And don't forget, you can follow Kim on LinkedIn by searching for Kim Hagem. That's Kim, H-A-K-I-M, to keep yourself posted on all of her upcoming cybersecurity events. 